Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Quick bit of follow-up. We've been talking about the Omega Caliber 321 quite a bit on and off. And recently, Gear Patrol interviewed the CEO of Omega, Reynold Eichelman, and they asked him a few very pointed questions about the 321, which has shed a little bit more light into the, the situation and, and circumstances surrounding it. Most interesting to me is that uh, they have no intention of expanding their production beyond what they've planned, and that they will be keeping this caliber exclusively for the Speedmaster line. And uh, they also point blank asked him about the fact that the price tag on Omega Speedmaster has tripled during the time that he's been at the company, uh, to which he, he didn't really offer much of a response, <laughs> understandably. But uh, kudos to Gear Patrol for uh, pointing that out. Yeah, I, I don't see there being a lot of impetus for uh, Omega to change the pricing that they have. They've, you know, they're obviously selling as many watches as they want to be making right now. So I, I just don't see them wanting to drop the price. Although, you know, as we've discussed a little bit with everything that's going on with COVID-19, we'll see how the economy recovers from this over the next couple of years. And we'll see if, you know, maybe they need to drop the prices just in order to to sort of motivate people to buy uh, watches again. We'll see what happens from that. But uh, I, other than something, you know, other than a major economic downturn like that, I, I don't see Omega changing their pricing structure at all. There's, and also, I don't see them changing the, the 321 structure. You know, again, they're they're able to sell as many as they produce, and I suspect that if they doubled the production, they could probably sell twice the number of watches. So, mm, just control the supply, just keep that demand. I think that if anything is going to change the pricing on watches, it's going to be uh, the the fallout from COVID nineteen, and uh, I think we'll it'll be interesting to see over the next two years what happens with smaller watch brands, both independent watch brands, as well as smaller brands that are part of some of these larger conglomerates. I'm curious to see which ones fail, uh, which ones that are allowed to fail, because of course, some of these, uh, some of these brands are part of, are part of much bigger umbrellas. And I would be shocked if all of the brands that are under those umbrellas are, are continued. They'll probably want to consolidate some of them down to a, you know, to a, a more manageable number. And uh, it'll be interesting to see who survives and who doesn't. If anything, COVID-19 serves as a bit of a, a scapegoat for a lot of these larger umbrella mm-hmm. companies and, and conglomerates. And they can just use COVID-19 as an excuse to cut off less profitable subsidiary brands if they like. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it may be a time for them to experiment heavily with some of them as well and be able to say, Okay, let's. We know that this this brand is failing. Let's try something different and see if it's going to work. You know, maybe it's a different marketing strategy or whatever. Let's see if it works for, uh, you know, for the market as it is today. And if it does, then they can roll it out to some of their other brands. And if it doesn't, well, again, this is a perfect excuse for them to be able to say, "Listen, we've tried to keep it going. We've tried different things, and it failed. And, you know, that's it's sad, but that's what we're going to do with it. So. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next the next little while. Obviously, some brands are doing well from this. Some of them aren't. Uh, one of the big things uh, that, that we'll talk about in a minute is the virtual get-togethers that people have been doing, and some of the brands have been doing virtual launches and things like that. And 
some of that's been more successful than others. Some brands haven't even bothered trying. Uh, so we'll see what uh, we'll see what these different brands do and and where they go with it because I think some of them are getting it and some of them aren't. Yeah, Omega's done quite well to get out in front of this, and they embraced online sales and online launches quite a bit earlier than other larger brands. Uh, the notable example there is uh, their partnership with Fratello Watches, who started the whole Speedy Tuesday movement on Instagram and mm-hmm. and getting that first Speedy Tuesday watch out. I guess it was what three or four years ago now. And certainly Omega was one of the first big brands to really to look at the at that online world and look at the forum world and say, all right, let's try and make something that makes these people happy because they are our super fans. Uh, of course, those watches now, those Speedy Tuesday watches have just gotten out of control in terms of the pricing and the um, the demand for them. Uh, I think the last one ended up, that Ultraman one from two years ago, I think that sold out in, you know, a matter of minutes. Like it was, it was crazy how quickly it sold out. So mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we'll see what happens from uh, from these. Uh, Omega is going to do fine. Some of the, you know, obviously the big brands, they're going to do fine. They're going to see a downturn in their watch production and uh, their demand, but uh, they've they've managed to survive that a couple of times now over the last well fifty years. So uh, they'll they'll be able to survive this again. But uh, it's going to be some of the smaller ones that that really suffer. I'm interested to see just how much longer brands like Patek Philippe and and Rolex can hold off selling online that's yeah that's going to be an interesting problem and really it's going to depend on how quickly they're willing to get rid of their distribution network because or to allow their distribution network to to sell online as well and that's the that's the real challenge right because if they start selling online then every store out there who carries their products they're going to want to be able to sell online as well. And the big trick with that is that you have to make sure that you're not competing with your retailers and that your retailers can compete with you, uh, you know, fairly. Like they're not, they're not going to be un- undercut by you. And that's something that a lot of the brands have been unwilling to navigate in the past. And partially because I think that they don't really want the, I don't think their distribution network really wants to do it either. Like, a lot of the companies that are selling watches are jewelry companies and they're not really interested in selling online themselves. Uh, the online jewelry sales is not a particularly, it's not a particularly lucrative market just because then it's sort of a race to the bottom in, in the jewelry world. And I, I don't think that they want to get rid of that personal interaction with their clients. So I don't think they really want to go online Nowadays, they have to just because that's the only way they can sell anything. But I I don't see there being a huge shift just yet in this because I, I don't think the companies want to do it. I don't think like Patek wants to do it. I don't think that Rolex wants to do it. And I'm pretty sure that their, their retailers don't want to do it either. There are areas of their lineups that I think they could place online and still keep some of the other models reserved. Like, for instance, with Patek, they're... Their 24 line for the ladies. I don't see any reason why they shouldn't be selling that online. Yeah, the, then the question becomes, why aren't you selling the rest of it, right? And why aren't you making any any of your watches available? Now, of course, there are always going to be Halo watches, which are never going to be available online. Like, it doesn't make sense to try and sell a, a quarter million dollar watch or a half million dollar watch or something like that online. But at the same time, if you know if you're looking at everything that's let's say under fifty thousand dollars, 
then why aren't you selling any of your watches, you know, all of your watches that are under that price point? And it's, you know, that that just starts to alienate some of your client base and that's uh, that can be a problem as well. So we'll have to see. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I know some of the, some of the brands are allowing people to sell online right now. I think some of them are doing it themselves right now temporarily, but I think that they all plan on, from what I've heard, they plan on going back to their regular distribution after this. So I guess we'll see. Another area where Omega has come out a little bit ahead of the pack is Basel World. They pulled out of the fair last year, and then this year, there simply wasn't a Basel World. And it looks like, henceforth, there is very likely to be no Basel World whatsoever because Patek and Rolex have now bowed out and they teamed up with the Fondation d'Autologie and they'll be debuting there in 2021. Yeah, I think the sort of the writing was on the wall for Basel World and and uh watching a lot of the big brands pull out over the last few years and obviously there's a lot of politics going on behind the scene with uh, with the organizers of Basel World. There's a lot of other people there at Basel World showing other than these large corporations. Now obviously they're bringing the the majority of the attention to the show. Uh, but there are also a lot of very small companies that are supplying tools and materials to the industry, and they show up. And there's an entire pavilion set up for, you know, for these smaller companies. And for a lot of them, this is a huge part of their ability to sell to the and market to the inside of the industry. And I think there's still a demand for that kind of a show. So it'll be interesting to see if Basel World decides to pivot to becoming a true insider's show or whether it um, just decides to fold up its tent and somebody else picks up that mantle. And there's a, you know, there's a different show that ends up being sort of an insider's show for you know, suppliers of movement, suppliers of tools, suppliers of materials, uh, all the things that are necessary for the, the industry itself to run. Uh, you know, for people like me to be able to find suppliers for, you know, for whatever. Um, I'll be interested to see what happens with that and whether Basil decides to do it or whether uh, they leave it to somebody else to, to take on that uh, that responsibility. Well, there are already other fairs like that, like the, the EPHJ that happens every year that tends to be more on the supplier side of things for the horological and, and jewelry industry there in Switzerland. So. Basel World for those brands that would exhibit at both was just kind of you know, gravy. The focus of the EPHJ is, is more on that supplier side of things and mm-hmm. actual tools and tooling and supplying of components and whatnot for that. The things that actually make the industry tick. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's you know Basel is obviously big enough that it it attracts a different clientele as well. It, it attracts different people to it, so it's. You know, they're replacing two shows a year, let's say, that do that kind of thing with one is not always uh, the answer. And it's not always good for the those people and those suppliers, because if they're not ready for a particular show one year, then that means they have to wait another 12 months to get to the next one. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know what Basel plans on doing. They certainly haven't I haven't announced any of their plans yet and what they're going to do, whether they're going to try putting on a show next year or not. It's been quite the stream of hits. Over the past couple of weeks, 
is not only did Patek and, and Rolex bow out, along with Chopin and, and others, but then the LVMH group also bowed out following that news. So mm-hmm. they then lost, you know, your Hublots, your Bulgari, Tegoyer, Zenith, all those brands also now no longer exhibiting at Basel. And the independents were already beginning to exhibit at SIHH over the past couple of years. Because that was the highlight too, for me, especially of Basel World was the AHCI exhibit. And that was a real important launching bed for a lot of independent watchmakers, especially around the turn of the millennium there. Well, you know, as we said with, with online marketing, I think that really the best way for these people to be able to get out there in the world is to improve the way they're marketing online. They've been, they've sort of ceded their control of their message and getting it out into the world to the, um, you know, to the journalists out there. And they don't really control how that message gets, you know, sort of is is put out to all the people that are out there. A lot of like I've, one of the biggest problems I find with Basel from the from a journalism point of view and from a launch point of view is that most of what you're seeing is really just a uh, a repeat of the talking points from a press release. And there, there really isn't a lot of interesting insight into what's going on with the watches. And so you're basically seeing, you know, a half a dozen outlets repeating the exact same thing over and over again. If the brands are, are smart about how they market themselves and their, their new launches, they can actually have the public sort of show up and be able to give them the narrative themselves you know, they can do more interactive online shows. Uh, they can do live streams and things like that and stuff that allows them to, you know, to sort of get closer in touch with what's going on with the, the people and, and the people can actually see it them, themselves in person, you know, virtually speaking. And, you know, do something more along the lines of what uh, what the companies in the tech world have been doing for years. Like you'd look at an Apple and you look at their keynotes their keynotes are their way to be able to get their message out into the world. And they don't just rely on the journalists to be able to talk about it. They actually make those keynotes available to everybody to watch. Well, the average watch collector is not able to actually get to Basel and see these launches in person and talk to the, you know, the brand managers and things like that. So they've never really had that access, but this is maybe an opportunity for them to say, all right, let's let's change the way we're marketing. Let's change the way that we're doing this and we can actually uh, get in front of people a little bit better. Something I found particularly impressive about the way Apple does and has done this, particularly during the Steve Jobs era, his second coming, is that he would effectively write the headlines for the journalists. And it's not like he'd come out and say, this is what your headline's going to be, but he would distill a product so perfectly and in such a catchy way. It's like a thousand songs in your pocket, that sort of thing. Yeah. The headlines just regurgitated verbatim what he had said. It's essentially the marketing material and they're getting a whole bunch of free marketing, a whole bunch of free press by holding these events that are just so well rehearsed and fine-tuned and dialed in to deliver the exact message that he wanted to deliver or that Apple desire to deliver 
And when you look at the amount of money the watch industry is spending to attend something like Basel, right? Imagine what Rolex, for instance, could do with the money that they were were spending on that. Well, again, you're you're spending millions and millions of dollars to get in front of effectively a, a small percentage of the watch world. If you took a, a fraction of that amount of money and put it into doing various online events and maybe smaller in-person events, then all of a sudden you have a, a greater reach. You can you can actually get out in front of people that uh, that you want to be able to get out in front of. And this is something that Rolex's sister brand, Tudor, has been experimenting with over the past couple of years. And that's been interesting to see. Uh, the small events that they've held for collectors and whatnot, and they'll make it seem like you're going on an expedition or they'll host something in a barbershop somewhere or like an old school barbershop where you get a straight edge shave or Rochezur Lecout is another good example. They hosted a, a release at the Explorers Club there in New York. And I think there are a lot of opportunities for a lot of brands to do more things like this. I'm just simply curious to see whether Rolex does pursue similar events looking at the success of what Tudor's been doing and mm-hmm. the success that they've had relaunching Tudor in the United States and in other markets. Absolutely. And obviously, they're, they're working at a larger scale than some of these smaller companies. But when you look at the success of small brands, you know, everything from, a, you know, like a Fears Watch company, right? You look at what Nick's doing with their, their branding, their marketing, their events. He does an outstanding job of being able to present their material online, be able to present options, be able to to sort of drive that narrative and, and show people what it is that's going on with the company. And at the same time, holding in-person events in different places where he thinks that there are going to be enough collectors to make it worth his time. So he's done trunk shows in London. He's done them in New York, in Nashville. You know, he's he's sort of gone on road trips before to be able to do that sort of thing. Uh, there's a group of independent watch companies in um, in Europe that have been putting on the Watchmakers Club events for a couple of years now. They do two events a year, one in the spring, one in the fall. I think that's being driven by Bremont, uh, the folks there. And again, they're, you know, they're putting on these really great small events where you know, the public who is interested can go and see these things, see these watches, talk to the people behind these these brands and be able to to actually sort of interact with the people that are involved. Or again, you take somebody like, a you know, an even smaller brand, somebody like uh, Mr. Jones Watches. When you look at the way they run their Instagram account, they do an outstanding job of interacting with the people that are fans, talking to them about the different designs and what, you know, what are your favorite designs? What are the things that you've liked? What would you like to see in the next watches? You know, there's some some amount of that that you have to sort of take with a grain of salt when you're getting feedback from the public. But when you see what these brands are doing, when you see what these, you know, again, small companies, they have to market online because they can't afford multi-page ads in dozens of magazines every month, right? They can't afford to go to Basel World. They can't afford all of that press. They have to figure out other ways of doing it. And some of them are doing a fabulous job of it. And as part of that, they're growing quite successfully. And people are really invested in what that brand is doing. Again, same thing like a Roger Smith, right? He's he's really good at at engaging online and showing the stuff that's going on behind the scenes. And most of the people that are interacting with him on a regular basis online are never going to be able to buy one of his watches. And frankly, he couldn't produce watches for 
a half a percent of the people that are following him online. You know, he's only they're only producing twenty watches a year or whatever. So they can they can never keep up with that that number of of people. But it doesn't matter. They're still able to sort of market to them and create this Halo product that maybe one day they will be able to afford. If companies like Omega and and Rolex and you know whoever else figures this out and Patek and whatnot and figures out that they can actually talk to the public directly themselves and do it effectively, then they might start, you know, surviving this a little bit better. Yeah, Jason Lim is another great example of doing things well on Instagram. He runs Helios watches, which is a, a micro brand. And Ming as well. Ming's done superbly. Yeah, Ming has done some great stuff. Actually, they did a really good, th- um, they've done some great stuff with um, Lee uh, UN Reputee, who we've talked about on the show before, and some of the stuff that the collaborations they've done with him. Like again, it gets it gets attention and it gets interest, and people are excited to see what's going on. And is it directly selling them, you know, selling a watch every time they do that? No, of course not. But it gets people interested and it gets people bought into the idea of their watches and their product, and and that's all. That's an important part of it. You need that story out there. And Bremont deserves credit as well for being quite a pioneer in this area of serving up small, intimate events that acquaint you with the brand and mm-hmm. give you a feeling. For, for what their brand is about and the emotions that they'd like to invoke. You know, hosting these meetings or weekend-long events at a, a townhouse in London or, or New York or taking a vintage car and driving it across the country on a road trip and stopping it at different retailers or little pop-ups along the way. It would have been nice to go to a Basel world when it was sort of at its at its full power. At the same time, I, I know, having spoken to enough people that have been to it, that I, I'm not sure that I would have really gotten a lot out of it. And I think that going to things like these, uh, you know, the Watchmaker Club events or, you know, Watches and Wonders and things like that, those, those sorts of events, I think, are going to be far more appealing to, certainly to myself. And when I think about how do I want to market myself and market my own watches going forward, I look at those kinds of events and I go, those, those to me are far more appealing uh, because I have a lot more face time with people that are actually interested in what I'm interested in making. Now, this must be something you must be thinking about quite a bit, being on the verge of of launching your own brand. Absolutely. It's something that I have to think about because, again, I don't have the resources to run a full ad campaign in in a bunch of magazines. I don't have the ability to send out you know, review watches to five or six or seven different websites and say, hey, would you mind, uh, you know, doing a review of my watch, right? I, I can't afford to do that. And, you know, I need to be able to get in front of people that are actually keen to to buy the watches that I'm producing, or at least to start to see, okay, this is the story of of what it is that I'm doing and get them, you know, invested in what it is that I'm doing. I think that I've got an interesting story and I think that the way that I'm doing things is is going to be interesting to people. I know from I know from the pen world and you know selling my story there, selling what it is that I was doing there. It's a powerful way to market to people. Obviously it's a much smaller group and a, you know it's more intimate and and you can't reach as many people at once, but at the same time I also can't produce a million watches a year or however many it is that Rolex is producing. So I don't, I don't really need to be able to, to get to millions and millions of people at once. Uh, I just need to find, you know, a half a dozen, a dozen, um, you know, people at first who, who are 
you know, are interested in what it is that I'm doing and, and like that. So I am really curious to see where this is going because for me, it's going to dramatically affect how the next couple of years go for me in terms of how, how I how I market myself and, and what, what events I go to. And again, watching people like, you know, the Bremont folks, watching Nick, you know, those those kinds of people, they are doing interesting things. And I I have a huge amount of respect for where they're going with their, uh, you know, their events, their marketing, and how they're doing it. I don't know that I'm going to be able to do it as well as them, but at least it gives me ideas of, of what I should do. You know, I'm hoping that I can sort of ride their coattails a little bit in terms of these events and be able to go to them and be able to say, oh, you don't, you know, most of you who walk through this door, you have no idea who I am. But this is, you know, this is what I'm doing. And this is why, you know, this is why I'm here. And then there's also, you know, other places like, um, uh, you know, places like Time for a Pint, places like um, Red Bar, you know, some of the some of the various podcasts that are out there, the watch podcasts that are out there. Those are, again, great ways to be able to get in front of people without necessarily spending huge amounts of money and, and time to get you know, to get out there and, and create an advertising campaign and whatnot. So there's there's different ways of doing it. And, and I'm really curious to see how all of these succeed and how some of them do better than others over the next couple of years. You mentioned earlier that Roger Smith can't produce enough watches to possibly sell one to every single person that he's interacting with there on the, the internet. And uh, recently, Time for a Pint has been going digital on a, a weekly basis, which has been a real treat. And you've had the opportunity to tune in live to a lot of those, mm-hmm. if not all of them. Uh, whereas myself, it's a little challenging to carve out that chunk of time with two little toddlers running around in the middle of the afternoon. So I've been catching the recordings, which I'm also very grateful that they, they have out there. Uh, but recently, Roger Smith was a guest, and there was close to 100 people tuning in live. And if he were to produce 100 watches... That would take them close to a decade, if not more. Well, this is just it. Uh, yeah, speaking of people who are great at marketing themselves and and great at, at sort of pivoting in what's going on, Chris Mann, who runs Time for a Pint, is outstanding at this. He's uh, uh, if you don't listen to to Time for a Pint, you should you should give the the podcast a listen. It's uh, it's an interesting conversation that he has regularly with different collectors of watches. And if you're in London and you have an opportunity to go to one of the Time for a Pint gatherings, uh, they are definitely worthwhile going to. There's some great people that show up to them, and they're they're a lot of fun. Of course, today, you know, in 2020, we can't get together. Where there's no way for us to actually get together in a pub and and uh, be able to chat. So Chris and um, uh, also Matt, the watch nerd, the two of them have been driving a virtual Time for a Pint get together every Sunday afternoon. And they have two other guests that join them. Uh, so that uh, that week that Roger was on, uh, Lee was also on the show. The, the format for the show is that each of the four panel guests brings a watch to show off. And they, you know, they give a little bit of backstory as to, you know, the watch itself and how they came to acquire it and, you know, whatnot. Basically talking about whatever it is they're interested in about that watch, why, why that watch is something that they like. And um, and they share that, and then it's also possible to uh, ask questions through the virtual interface, the the typed interface that's there. Uh, there's a chat interface inside of Zoom that allows you to ask questions. So um, people that are there live can participate and ask questions of uh, of the different participants, and and uh, you know sort of figure out a little bit more about what's going on. All of them have been fascinating. 
uh, I've been fortunate. I know uh, most of the people that have been on the show so far, uh, either through interactions in person or through um, you know Instagram or whatever. I've I've managed to get to know a lot of these people over the years, and uh, so it's been nice to be able to hear a little bit more from people that I know a bit more of about. Uh, but then at the same time, there are also a bunch of people that I don't know who've shown up and. It's been really nice to sort of get introduced to other people that that I don't know. And uh, there have been some great stories that have shown up on there. There's only about 100 people. I think that that's the limit is 100 people for any of the shows. But if you're unable to make it like you or if, uh, you know, you just can't get to be one of the, the 100 people that are that are participants, then it is also possible to watch these afterwards on YouTube. Chris has been putting them up most cases same day, uh, sort of later in the evening and getting them up on YouTube. So it's a great way of being able to see what's going on. And again, this is, you know, for me, it's been wonderful. We live in the backwoods of the world in terms of getting to events like this. Obviously, I can't go to Time for a Pint every every month just because it's in London and I'm in Ottawa. Uh, so this has been good for me because it, it sort of gives me a chance to participate with with some live events with people that uh, that I know and people that are interested in the same things that I'm interested in. It'll be interesting to see whether things like this persist in any manner once COVID-19 is under control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know that uh, Chris and Matt have talked about maybe trying to do something like this once a month after COVID-19 has sort of released its its claws on the world and we're sort of able to get back out and and meet again in person. Obviously, it's impractical to try and do this every week just because the, you know, most people have things to do. Obviously, right now, we don't have anything to do in terms of going outside and having other events. So uh, I think we'll see it drop down to once a month afterwards. But uh, it's a great way for people from other parts of the world to participate. I know we've had uh, people from all over the world showing up at these, uh, these time for pints. And uh, it's been, it's, as I said, it's been great for me. I've, uh, I'm a big fan of it. I do know that some of the other watch podcasts, like the Scottish watch podcast, uh, they've done some of their interviews now on Instagram live. So again, people can actually watch the interviews live and then they put it together into their proper format and release it as their normal, uh, their normal podcast in their feed. But uh, they've been starting to do some of those interviews um, over the internet now and they're doing them through uh, stuff like, like Instagram live. And, and that's been a, that's been an interesting thing to do as well. I don't know how much that's going to pick up and, and how much that's going to catch on. Uh, I know from our conversations, it's, I, I like to be able to edit our conversations and, make us sound maybe a little bit smarter than we uh, than we do when we're actually talking off the cuff. Um, so I don't know how, I don't know how many people are willing to do that, but, and uh, sort of put it, put it out warts and all on online live. But yeah, it's, it's certainly this, this time has forcing us to do things that maybe is a little bit outside of our comfort zone. And uh, hopefully it sticks around because it's, it's definitely letting more people into this world and, and more people are able to participate regardless of where they live in the world. One of the things I appreciated about the the rock candor of those Time for a Pint episodes that have been released on, on YouTube, particularly that episode with Lee and Roger Smith, is just seeing the, the sheer delight on Lee's face as he was describing and, and talking about the, the watch that he had made and the, the and the watch style that, that he made with his typeface, Matic on it and it's just really really neat and special to see that and i know the two of you have been working closely on fine-tuning the typeface for your dials 
and you have now finally received the laser that you were waiting so patiently for. Yeah, the uh, the laser that I've I picked up a fiber laser, and that is been specifically so that I can engrave my own print plates for pad printing. So that's that was the initial reason for the purchase. There's also a lot of other advantages to me owning a, a fiber laser. And uh, I can do things like deep engrave into the watch case itself, for instance, or the movement, or even dials. If I want to be able to do one-off dials and I don't want to print them, then I can also play around with uh, with engraving them using the the laser engraver. So it's nice to get that uh, that laser in the in the shop and be able to start experimenting with it a little bit. Uh, certainly a little bit of a learning curve trying to get that up and running. And uh, I, I haven't even bothered trying to, to play with the print plates yet just because I'm, I'm still learning the ins and outs of trying to run a fiber laser and, and what's involved in trying to engrave things successfully. So it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. I've, you know, I've maybe got seven or eight hours playing around with it so far. So still quite a ways away from, from being able to do anything really productive with it. But it's, uh, it's amazing watching this thing work. And, and once you get some of the settings dialed in, uh, it, it's terrifying just how quickly it can tear through like hardened tool steel, for instance, and, uh, and deep engrave into that. And it's, uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. So given the initial results that you've had with it, do you think it's going to fill the use case that you intended and does it, has it met or, or surpassed your expectations of it? Certainly once you figure out some of the ins and outs of it, it is definitely what I was expecting it to be able to do. One of the problems when you're dealing with any kind of graphics is the differences between raster-based graphics and vector-based graphics. And the vector-based graphics are always going to be cleaner. They're going to provide you with sharper lines and more detail. And unfortunately, a lot of the software that's out there for engraving, whether it's engraving with something like a like a laser whether it's um running something like a cnc router like we've you know we run into this problem occasionally with the cnc router uh or any cnc equipment a lot of these programs are are designed to use such old versions of formats so for instance if you want to use illustrator files which is sort of the industry standard for creating vector-based graphics you can't use anything even remotely close to a modern day illustrator format. You know, you have to go back to like an illustrator version three format before you can actually get one that's compatible with the software. So it's, it's kind of frustrating and sort of learning those kinds of ins and outs and, um, you know, figuring out what works and what doesn't. So now that I've figured out some of the, the workflow in terms of how do I go from those nice vector graphics that I've been building in something like affinity designer and how do I output those in a way that I can actually get them into the software that they use, the EasyCAD software that they use to run this this laser? Now that I figured that out, it's made things a lot easier. I can now start to get high quality graphics in there. Uh, I did a very quick test uh, cut of a uh, dial that I was experimenting with. I've got a couple of cases that fit a six four nine seven movement. And I wanted to do just a, a couple of little dials for those just to be able to, to sort of slap together a couple of uh, watches and be able to experiment with some dial design and see how the typeface that I've, um, I've been working on with Lee, how that actually looks on a dial and whatnot. So I just did a, a quick 
engraving on some nickel silver the other day. And the detail is perfect. Like it's exactly what I'm looking for. Uh, the problems that I'm having now are things related to the actual ablation of the material. So, you know, now what I'm getting is I'm actually getting a raised edge around the outlines of all my text. And that's because it's it's sort of destroying the material right around there. And it's fusing back onto the material that I'm not cutting right beside it. And so you actually get this little raised edge that comes up beside the um, the edge of the cut. So there's things like that where I need to figure out, okay, what's the best way of of preventing that? How do I clean that up afterwards? You know, there's different ways of getting different colorings out of it. So with something like nickel silver, I can get anything from a deep black to browns to uh, a pale gold color. I can get a silver color out of it. And so it's just a question of finding out what settings work best for what it is that I'm trying to do and, you know, sort of make that make it look the way that I want it to look. So I, I know that there are certain lasers that you can fire quickly enough that you don't get that overspray. So I'm curious whether you're able to to dial in that amount of time that the laser is actually on for when it's firing to get it short enough that you can avoid overspray. Well, that's, yeah. So you can control the frequency of how often the laser is firing. And what you're doing there is you're then spreading out the power over the number of firings that you've got. So if I'm trying to do a deep cut into the material, for instance, then I'm going to set the frequency to 20 kilohertz. So 20,000 times per second, it's going to fire that laser. And it's going to, you know, it's going to keep that, the power that I've told it to use distributed amongst those 20,000 firings of the laser and because of that it's going to engrave deeper into the material uh, just because there's more energy being driven into each firing of that laser basically if i increase that um, that frequency number if i bring it up to eighty thousand hertz then the same amount of energy is being used but it's being distributed across more firings of the laser so each individual fire of the laser is less powerful it's less intense than than at 20 kilohertz and when you look at the the differences that you get uh, in fact what i've one of the things i've done is i've actually got a, a sort of charts that i've created where i've set up different boxes with different settings so you know uh, like I've, I've used everything at 20 kilohertz and i've changed some of the other options that are there like speed and power right so you can increase or decrease the power you can increase the speed and leave the frequency the same and then i've got other charts where i've tried it and i've kept the power and speed the same and i've changed the frequency and so i can actually see how that affects the outcome of the material and depends on it depends a lot on what the material is so with something like nickel silver for instance which i've been experimenting with just because it's cheap and i've got a bunch of it around you get um, you get a lot of overspray at certain power settings. When you deal with something like steel, um, steel will actually cut easier than the nickel silver will, and it will you know it'll actually cut deeper into the into the steel than the nickel silver will at similar settings, and you don't get as much overspray from it. 
So uh, there's a lot of different variables that are involved in terms of, you know, again, power, speed, frequency. You can also control the hatching and how far apart the lines are from each other. So you can say, all right, I want these lines to be 0.01 millimeters apart, or I want them to be 0.05 millimeters apart. And that will also control how it looks when you're, you know, when you're looking at the thing afterwards. Uh, And it controls how much energy is being put into a small area. And so depending on all of those settings, and most importantly, the material that you're actually using them on, again, you can get everything from basically a, a light annealing pass all the way to some kind of a deep engraving pass. You know, with the materials that I'm planning on using, particularly things like silver, those are challenging just because they absorb so much energy and they are very, very reflective. So you have to put a lot of power into them to be able to engrave them. So something like that, I doubt that I'll get very much overspray because even at the most powerful settings, they're not. it's not going to um, sort of engrave deep in a single pass. I'm actually going to have to put a lot of passes into it before it'll actually get to the results that I want. Whereas something like stainless steel that, you know, that my first cases are going to be made out of, that's a material that I can very easily engrave. It's very receptive to deep engraving. And just because of the makeup of the material, it also doesn't tend to spray as much as something like the nickel silver does. So it's a sort of a balance. And a lot of it is trial and error trying to figure out what works well for the different materials you know, the, the problem with a lot of this stuff is that there are a lot of people online who have fiber lasers, you know, they're engraving, uh, let's say, aluminum, right? They're, they're taking aluminum, uh, anodized aluminum parts, and they're deep engraving into them. Or they're doing a light marking pass. Um, and I say light in terms of like how deep you're actually engraving, not the color of the engraving. And they're doing relatively light engraving on, let's say, steel to mark parts and be able to, or mark tools or whatever. There are not a lot of people who are sharing the information on how to, you know, deep engrave silver, for instance, or deep engrave platinum or gold. Uh, I know there are people doing it, but a lot of them aren't sharing that information online. So I'm going to have to do a lot more experimentation with those things and basically destroy a lot of material in order to find out what works best for me. Um, You know, what, what doesn't work well. Uh, I've already been able to do things like with um, like with a high carbon cool steel. I've been able to find settings where I can start getting you know like a nice rich blue coming out because I'm oxidizing the metal at the right temperature to actually bring out those oxidation layers we've talked about when we talk about heat treating, you know, heat bluing steel. Well, you can do that with a laser and sort of do it in a repetitive way because you're heating the metal. And that heating process is what's giving you that color. Um, I know people that have done that with um, titanium as well. You know, depending on the settings that you set for titanium, you can get a whole range of colors. Basically, anything you would be able to do with heat bluing, you can also do with a laser on titanium. I need to really figure out, pick the materials that I need to, that I know that I'm going to be using and start to experiment with all of the various settings and options and from there start to dial in okay i know that these basic settings are going to get me sort of close to where i want to go now how do i take it further how do i deep engrave so that it's going to look good and i don't need to post process it a lot afterwards it sounds like there's a nascent market for a machinery's handbook for fiber lasers and the like 
Yeah, it's funny that nobody's really created that. There's there's a couple of good programs out there. Uh, actually, Rich and I both use a program for feeds and speeds uh, for the machining world. And this guy's created a great application where you give it things like what's the, you know, how much horsepower does your machine have? Uh, what type of cutter are you using? How many flutes does it have? What type of metal is it that you're making, you know, that you're cutting? All of these things. And it will actually give you the feeds and speed settings. And it'll spit them out and give you a nice a nice range of information. And you can actually say, all right, I want to go a little bit harder. I want to go a little bit softer. I'm, you know, I want to remove more material or less material or whatever. And and he's created this great application for doing this. And um, I know Rich has actually suggested to him that uh, that he adds a laser option in there. And and his response was, oh, there are too many too many options available. I'm like, well, you know, you're dealing with things like chip thinning on on machining. You know, on when you're milling something. You know, like some like really esoteric parts of of machining that are actually quite important when it comes to uh, certain you know certain processes and like high speed machining and things like that and tool life compensation and tool life wear and all that stuff. So you know he's already dealing with an extremely complex set of variables for the stuff that he does deal with. It is unfortunate that he he doesn't seem to want to do anything with uh, with lasers because uh, there certainly is a need for it. There are a couple of companies that have released sort of their guidelines for lasers, uh, but again, they tend to be talking about the common things that are out there, things like steels, stainless steels, um, aluminums, uh, occasionally titanium, and they'll sort of give some general guidelines for what to use and, and what settings to use, but they're, they're certainly not detailed by any stretch of the imagination. So would you compare your current approach to dialing in the right settings to something like uh, an enameler's chipboard, showing all the different colors that they have available to them at their disposal and various layers and how many passes and what firing temperature and whatnot. Absolutely. Yeah. I've already started creating a, a spreadsheet of the different settings that are out there and the effects that they have. And uh, I'll, we'll include photos in the show notes of some of the, the little patterns that I've done. They're based on suggestions that other people have made for their machines and the materials that they use and some of the results are certainly excellent for the type of work that i want to do and the materials that i want to do so for instance like with the nickel silver being able to get this pale gold color sort of as a a polishing slash annealing pass at the end of it you know that might actually work out really well for some of the stuff that i want to do if i want to engrave let's say the uh, movement plate on some of the movements that I'm getting from Eterna. I believe they're using nickel silver for those those uh, the main plates, and you know I'll be able to let's say deep engrave them, and then at the end of it I'm going to be left with sort of this rough black surface at the bottom of the engraving. Well, if I can go in afterwards and use the laser to then sort of clean up that rough pass. Um, you know, and sort of do a finish pass and then maybe end up with a you know, sort of a light gold color at the bottom of the engraving. That'll help it stand out a little bit from the rhodium plating that's on the surface. And so it'll let me sort of create a little bit more contrast there. You know, so those are those are things that would be nice to be able to do. But again, that takes some experimentation and uh, I need to figure out exactly what the materials are that I'm going to be engraving and how they are going to look and all that. As you say, creating these sort of boards of these are the possibilities, these are the things that you can do with it, and uh, and exactly what the recipe is to get to that. Uh, that's all going to be extremely important, and I'm, I need to make sure that I can do that before I 
I sort of, you know, go full tilt into trying to produce watches using this as a as a way of decorating them. And getting the focal length right, the laser focused exactly where you want it to hit is another key factor in avoiding overspray and, and getting the results that you're after. How automated is that for you with this laser, or do you have to do quite a bit of hand-holding? This is a laser that's using the second-generation laser control boards that are out there uh, for fiber lasers. And they are designed to support X and Y controls. Uh, so that's the, the XY motion of the laser on the part. And they also have access to um, an A-axis, which is a rotary table. So I actually have a rotary table for, for this as well. And that allows me to do work along a cylindrical object like, say, a pen. That's the control limits that this thing has in terms of the, the dimensions. Uh, so ours, we have, to, we have to actually manually move the laser head up and down to be able to change the focus. With the third generation boards that are out there, and they're certainly a lot more expensive, and the machines that they're that they've put those third generation boards in are considerably more expensive. They have options for doing automatic focusing using lasers, like they actually use. They have some focus lasers that they use for determining where the surface of the part is. They can automatically focus the laser on the surface of the material that you're working on and get that ideal height. So that's something I may look at in the future is upgrading the control board to something that can handle ZX as well. I'd have to then also upgrade the Z-axis from a manual lead screw to a, a CNC lead screw, but that's fine. That's easy to do. But for now, this is fine. Like I'm mostly working with flat parts, so I don't really need to change the focus in the middle of a job, for instance. Like I don't have to follow the curve of an object to, to get the focus perfect the entire way. The focus plane is deep enough that I can actually, you know, let's say focus it just slightly above the surface of the part and still have enough power and focus to be able to get down deeper into the material and be able to continue working on it. For some of the results that you're looking for when you're working on anodized aluminum, they actually recommend that you focus a little bit above the part itself. So the laser is not actually optimally focused on the part. And that's so that you can sort of blast away the anodization without using too much power. Um, so there's a, a bunch of different options there. Uh, we're we're basically just going to create a story a story stick that you can stick on top of the part and use a witness mark on the laser head itself so that you know exactly where it needs to be the level that it needs to be at to be in focus for that part and fortunately it's not so critical that you know you need to get it down to you know a hundredth of a millimeter or anything like that you know if you're within a millimeter you know half a millimeter of where you think you know where you need to be then you're fine I'm not familiar with the concept of a story stick. Could you elaborate on this? Uh, so story sticks actually have been used in architecture for millennia, and they're typically marked with uh, important dimensions for a project. And so you'll create a, like let's say, for instance, you're building a, um, a cathedral, and you're not going to be around as the main architect to see the finishing of this cathedral. But you need to know that certain things are the same dimension everywhere inside of the building. And so what you'll do is you'll create a, a, a stick, a master stick that has certain dimensions marked out onto it. So it might be the, um, the length of the radius for the curve in an arch. It may be the height of a certain element in, 
you know, in the, the building. And from that master stick, um, copies will be made and the various workmasters around the building will have copies of it. And so they can then, they know that they're always working to the correct dimension. Uh, obviously, before standardized dimensions, that sort of thing was important. And this is where you get a standardized dimension on a job site, but it may be completely different than everywhere else in the world that you go to. You can do the same sort of thing in a modern shop. Obviously, working to an exact dimension is nice. You can then pull out a ruler, you can pull out a, a caliper or whatever, and you can actually measure to that exact dimension. But that's slow. You know, you don't necessarily want to pull out a, you know, a micrometer every time you want to measure something. Sometimes what you really need is a stick that has the exact length of something on it, the exact dimension of something on it, and you just want to be able to put it down on, you know, on your machine and go, oh yeah, okay, this is set to that, you know, that dimension. Depending on the tolerances and the precision that you're working towards, it may be inappropriate for what you're doing, but oftentimes it's it's very, very useful. Uh, in production work and lathe, I'm often using a story stick to check the amount of stick out of the material from the lathe when I'm turning apart, because I know that I need to have, let's say, an inch and a half of material sticking out of the, the lathe. Well, if I have to sit there and pull out my calipers every time I'm setting up the material, it slows me down a lot. Instead, I just have a, a stick with a little stopper on it. I put the stick at the, the face of the, the, the chuck, pull the material out up to the stop, done. I know that it's the right length and I don't have to worry about um, you know, checking it with a caliper. I can do it very, very quickly and I can get to, you know, get back to what I'm doing. So in this case, we'll actually create a, uh, you know, a metal stick that's the correct height, um, maybe even mark it with the laser, who knows. And, you know, we can then easily set the focus distance and it doesn't matter if the part is a millimeter tall or 30 millimeters tall. We can easily just stick this story stick on top of it and be able to set the the focus very quickly. And maybe we'll need to dial it in a little bit afterwards, but at least we're in the right ballpark. So you'd be using the story stick to measure the distance from the material, the surface that's facing the laser up to the, the laser head itself. Yeah, exactly. Yep. That makes sense. Well, thank you for clarifying, because initially I was picturing this stick with stories on it that you'd blast the laser at. Well, it has a story. It's the the story is the is the length yes. that you need to be at. You got it. You could even have all the proper inputs etched right there on your story stick. Yeah, it's it's a nice thing. Once you have a laser, everything looks like a and looks like something that needs to be cut, right? You can uh, all of a sudden all of the tools in my shop have my logo on them. <laughs> well, it sounds like you've been having a lot of fun with the laser. So I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, it's it's certainly an interesting it's an interesting challenge compared to the the things that I do. But fortunately, uh, my experiences with playing with feeds and speeds and materials and whatnot, again, not, not all of the materials that I have are, have common feeds and speeds, like silver, for instance. There's no published feeds and speeds for silver. So this is a, a way for me to be able to, to sort of use some of those skills. And it's just a slightly different set of parameters, that's all. Well, one final thing we'd like to leave you with. There's a whole slew of content that's been published over the past few weeks, everybody's releasing this and that for free to, to watch and, and take in now that everyone's sort of pent up inside. We've both enjoyed taking in the lives of artists presented by the Hourglass. Mm -hmm. It's a, just short films uh, under 10 minutes being presented on YouTube. So we'll uh, provide a link to this in the show notes. But the very first one, 
featured Maximilian Busso of MBNF. It was nice seeing uh, an interview with him. First off, the, the cinematography and the interview style uh, was top-notch on these series. I don't know who they got to do it, but they they obviously did a fabulous job on this. Clearly, all these were recorded before uh, the, the lockdown, uh, but they're very, very well done. They're very well shot. They're extremely well edited, and it's it's nice to see some of these interviews happening and, you know, sort of being out there now that we can't sort of get out into the world. Uh, the first one with Max was great. Uh, I I knew a little bit about him, but I didn't really know his story and how he got into watchmaking. So it was sort of nice to hear a little bit about that from him. The second one, I don't remember the name of the, the second gentleman, but he's an architect. I had no idea who he was, and it was it was nice to be exposed to, to him and what he's doing. But I was actually very familiar with a couple of the projects that he's worked on over the years. So it was nice to sort of be able to put a, a face to the project and uh, and what's there. Uh, I believe the next one is uh, Rajap Rajapi, who we've spoken about here on the show before as well. And there are a few other watchmakers, uh, Rogers on that list as well. And then again, a few more people, I have no idea who they are. So I'll be interested to, to sort of get to know them through these uh, interviews. Yeah, it looks to be a very promising series. And then Peter Speak Marin, who we've had on the show uh, from the Naked Watchmaker, he's also putting out a series of interviews as well on his YouTube channel, and uh, they're being broken up into multiple parts, and uh, so that some of them are out there, and I don't think all of the parts have been released for some of those interviews, but th- again, they're worthwhile. They're obviously focused on the watch world, and there's uh, some really good interviews in there as well, and we'll uh, we'll put a link to the Naked Watchmaker interview series as well. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand.